Looks like Caleb is in the back to receive youngsters ages four through eight who would like to go to children's church. They can stay and listen, but they can also go and have a special time there. They'll be back with the final hymn. We're looking at Acts uh, chapter 26 today, continuing in our study. Acts chapter 26, this will be page 935 if you're using the Bibles here. They're underneath the seats in front of you. Acts 26, beginning of verse 1. And we'll have to look at the whole chapter. There's a lot of rich material here, but it's one whole speech. So we'll look at the whole chapter, Acts 26. All right, if you're there, I want to take some time now and pray and ask the Lord to bless our reading of his word. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you give us the gift of understanding this morning as we look into your holy word. May we learn to put all our confidence in you, trusting not in our own understanding, but in your clear and sufficient revelation to us. O Lord, may the old man of sin be daily weakened in us more and more, that we may offer ourselves to you as holy, sanctified instruments made to glorify your holy name and to love our neighbors. Through Jesus' intercession for us, we pray to you. Acts chapter 26, beginning at verse 1. And just to get, you know what, I'll give you some uh, of the context here. If you haven't been following along with us, Acts 26, Paul has been uh, taken captive by the Romans, and he's now gone through a series of different defenses. He's defended himself multiple times. Uh, And finally, he had to appeal to Caesar um, for justice, and so... He appeals to Caesar, and the the most recent Roman governor there, uh, Festus, says, all right, you're going to go to Caesar. But he has a problem. He doesn't know what to say to Caesar about this guy, Paul. And so he calls his friend Agrippa, who's a a king, a local king of some areas nearby, and a friend. And Agrippa is kind of, he is a a Jew, and he's kind of known as, uh, you know, an expert on those things. And so he calls this guy Agrippa to come, hopefully to help him put together a letter. And so now... Um, they have, they've, there's this big gathering. They brought together all the Roman tribunes and the prominent citizens of the area and very festive, festal occasion, and they brought uh, Paul before them to give a speech. So that's where we come to. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion I have lived 
as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, 
I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. All right. Well, Pastor Kent Hughes tells the story of a clergyman in the late 1800s. His name was Bishop Wright. He thought it was impossible for men to fly. Flight, he said, is reserved for the angels. And yet, on December 17, 1903, his eldest son, Wilbur Wright, took it upon himself to prove his father wrong. And in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, he flew for 12 seconds, 120 feet. Uh, Many people thought those Wright boys were crazy back then, just like people thought uh, Christopher Columbus was crazy when he set off to explore the ends of the earth. They, They figured he would just drop off the edge of the earth, never come back. Then there was... Robert Fulton, when he first demonstrated his steamboat, the crowds began to chant, it will never start, never start, never start. They thought this Fulton guy was nuts. It was not going to work. The Apostle Paul was considered crazy by some in his time. But what do we think of his gospel message today? We have Luke's careful account here of his final defense in the book of Acts. And I believe what we find here are not the words of a lunatic. His message is rooted, comprehensive, hopeful, and compassionate. Let's look at each of these aspects of his message in turn. So first, rooted. Paul's message is rooted. That's my first point. Something that is rooted has roots that go down deep. It's something permanent. It has history in its place. If it wasn't rooted, it'd be like tumbleweed, you know, in those Western movies, the dry bushes that just kind of blow around. We don't know where they came from. We don't know where they're going. Paul makes it very clear here that his message is not like that at all. It is rooted in what God has said to his people from the very beginning. Notice what he says in the middle of verse 22. He says, so I stand here saying nothing but what the prophet and Moses said would come to pass. Uh, The prophets and Moses, that's a way of referring to the whole Old Testament. Paul's saying, I'm not making something new up. I'm just testifying to what God has always said would happen. The roots of what I'm saying go down deep into God's word. By the way, this is why you can't disconnect the message of the, Old, the New Testament from the Old Testament. It's, it's a united, connected flow of thought, a pattern of promises made and fulfilled. And, and Paul wants his listeners to see the rootedness of his message throughout his whole speech here. If you go back, you look at the beginning, verse 6, he says, uh, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm standing here because of my commitment to what the Jews have always been committed to. And then he goes on, middle of verse 7, and for this hope I am accused by 
the Jews. Uh, in other words, I'm not the one off track. They are. I'm not the unorthodox one. They are. I'm not the one who abandoned hope in God's promises. They are. I am rooted in what God has always said. Paul hits this note again at the end of his speech, verse 27, when he says to King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Right? Paul doesn't say, do you believe me? Do you believe my newfangled gospel message that came out of nowhere? No, it didn't. It is rooted deep in God's consistent message to the world from the very beginning. What's interesting is that Paul's conversion story actually identifies him as being in the line of all the Old Testament prophets that brought God's revelation to his people. Uh, he is part of this, this organic flow of God's truth. We, we can't spend much time on this, but if you just look at verses 12 to 18, this story of his conversion, this has already been told twice in the book of Acts. It's the third time now. Uh, and each time, it has sort of a different focus. This time, it focuses in on Paul's commissioning. Uh, he's being commissioned. And there are all sorts of parallels between this event and the commissioning of prophets throughout the Old Testament, the way that it happened for various prophets. Uh, Jesus calls his name twice, just like uh, Samuel and Moses. Uh, the, the glory of the Lord falls upon him. And this light that sends him to the ground. We can think of a couple people. The Lord reveals himself. I am Jesus. He tells Paul to rise and stand up on his feet. That's exactly what happened with Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. Paul is appointed as a servant and a witness. He's given those names. That reminds us of people like Moses and Isaiah. God promises to deliver Paul from his enemies. He did that with Jeremiah as well. There are all sorts of connections that kind of establish Paul as being in the line of these people who speak for God. It might not be obvious to you that this rooted aspect of Paul's message is really important. It's an important point, but I, I think if we just... Think about Paul's context here. There's this massive shift going on uh, at this point in history. It's around 60 AD. We've been watching it occur throughout the book of Acts. For millennia, the bearers of God's word in the world were the Jews. But here in Acts, it is the Christians who begin to take up the torch of God's word, not because they came up with something new and imaginative, but because they stay rooted in what God has always said. It is the Jews who abandon God's truth, who stop looking for the fulfillment of God's promises. It starts when they reject Jesus. Uh, the division is crystallizing here in the ministry of Paul as he is continually rejected. Those Jews who reject Jesus Christ are being cut off. Those Gentiles who receive him are being grafted in. You see, Christianity is not a first century religion. It's not. It's, it's rooted all the way back to the beginning of the world, to, to the Garden of Eden, the, the promise of the tree of life. That, that's Paul's hope. We'll see that later. Resurrection, the defeat of death, and the triumph of life, which is symbolized there all the way in the beginning with that tree of life. 
access to which was lost at the fall, but is regained through Jesus Christ. Paul's message is, is deeply rooted. Well, secondly, it is comprehensive. And maybe it helps to start out with a contrast. Uh, take something like money. What can money do for you? You can buy things with it. You can help people with it. You could take care of your family, your friends with it. These are good things. Uh, but it's also limited, right? It's, it's not comprehensive. It, it can't make you happy. It can't take away a feeling of guilt or shame. It can't change your understanding of the past. It can't free you from addiction. It can't get you true friends or real community. It is limited. In contrast, the message that Paul has, that you have, is comprehensive. We get this beautiful description of some of the things the gospel, just some of the things the gospel does. In verse 18, Jesus is speaking to Paul, and it begins with the, the image of someone's eyes being opened, which is a picture of dramatic change. Just close your eyes for a second and think about what it would be like having never opened them before to have them opened, right? And light, color, motion, beauty, definition, where there was darkness. And then Jesus goes on to identify some of the parts of this new world that their eyes have been, will be open to. Uh, there's, a, there's a turning from darkness to light. This is a shift in appetite from desiring what is dark to desiring what is light, what is the, the true, the good, the beautiful, as defined by God. There's a, a turn from the power of Satan to God. This is a change of allegiance and citizenship. The gospel takes us away from Satan's kingdom and brings us into God's. Satan has power over those whose eyes have not been opened. He yanks on their chain and they, they do his bidding without even knowing it. But the gospel breaks the chain. We are, we are still wary of his lies, but we are no longer under his reign. We don't have to believe his lies. We can stiff arm them. We focus on God's grace and forgiveness, which is the next thing mentioned here. God's forgiveness of sins. The, the great burden of guilt and shame falls off our backs at the cross and rolls away. God casts it as far as the east is from the west. That's how effective Christ's atonement is. Our dirty record, past, present, future, wiped clean. That's comprehensive. Now, continuing in verse 18, we're given a place, a home, you see, among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. This is a community and a family that is given through the gospel to those who believe. And this word, those who are sanctified, that's referring to being set apart for God's use. You know, like how um, the instruments and the tools in the Old Testament temple, they'd be sanctified, they'd be purified so that they could be used for worshiping God. So also we are set apart, sanctified for God's use. It's not just a family we get, but a purpose too, a, a calling. The gospel tells us who we are and also what we're for. It's a comprehensive message and we're just scratching it a little bit at the surface here. We love to make the gospel simple because we want people to understand it, but it's also something that we're constantly exploring 
and experiencing more. And I don't know that that will ever stop. One of the things this message does for us, we believe it, is it makes us hopeful, uh, which is another major theme of Paul's gospel message here. So my third point, hopeful. Hopeful. Um, there's a very weird book by George MacDonald called Lilith. I doubt many of you have read it, and I warn you that if you decide to read it, it is kind of trippy. I, I don't really know a better word to describe this book. It's strange. Um, the main character travels this is only one of the adventures. The main character travels to this other world where he meets a man and his wife caring for a graveyard of bodies. Uh, but the bodies aren't so much dead. They're sort of sleeping, but something much deeper even than sleep. And as the man leads him through these bodies, all sleeping on their beds, he sees that they're actually healing. Uh, wounds are going away, even like pained or mocking expressions are, are, are slowly being eased and, and healed from their faces. Um, clenched hands are loosening. Their, their bodies are growing younger, more beautiful. The man refers to the bodies as casks of wine set to ripen. All of them waiting for the resurrection bell and the cry, Awake, thou that sleepest, and rise from the dead. For, for McDonald, the resurrection is this, this massively hopeful thing. He's trying to capture it in this story that he tells. But you think about how the world views death. It, it's, it's either a place of incredible uncertainty. You know, will I pass the test? Will, will I be reincarnated as something better? Did I do enough good things? Is there a God or is there not? Or, or for others... It's just the end. The beginning of non-existence. That's it. But for Christians, death is not nearly so dreadful. It is fabulously hopeful. And you can see Paul's hope of resurrection poking its way through his speech here. You remember that Festus, he's not really known Paul for that long yet, uh, but he's already identified this as the concept that matters most to Paul. Back in chapter 25, verse 19, he tells Agrippa that the problem between Paul and the Jews seems to boil down to this claim. The Jewish, the, this Jesus guy was dead. Paul says he's alive. And, and then, of course, Paul begins his speech by saying this himself. Uh, it is because of my hope that I've been accused. And he says that that hope is the fact of God's resurrection of the dead. Verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? But you know, I think Festus thinks Paul is just talking about the resurrection of Jesus, one man. But see, to Paul, that was just the beginning. And that hope is a fulfilled hope. It already happened. The living Jesus appeared to Paul. He spoke to Paul. Paul didn't go looking for him. He didn't imagine him. He was trying to kill his followers. Jesus found Paul. And notice what Paul says to Agrippa at the end of the text, verse 26. I know none of these things escaped your notice, Agrippa, for this has not been done in a corner. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ. If the Jews or the Romans could produce a dead body, believe me, they, they would have produced the dead body of the Christ. Now you've got hundreds of people walking around Palestine claiming to have met the risen Lord, to have eaten fish with him, to have spoken with him. 
This didn't happen in a corner, and Agrippa knows it. But this is not Paul's hope for the future. This is a reality. His hope pops out in verse 23. Moses and the prophets told us that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to, the, to our people and to the Gentiles. Jesus is the first blaze of light to break the arms of death, the first in a harvest that waits to break the surface of the earth on the day of resurrection. Just like George MacDonald's book, casks of wine, maturing, perfecting, healing until they rise in glory. This is why Paul is hopeful. This is why Festus flips his lid. Verse 24, Festus interrupts Paul and shouts at him, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. I mean, this, this just got way out of hand for, for Festus. He, he thought this was about one guy rising, and all of a sudden he's realizing this, this guy, Paul, thinks the cemeteries of the world are going to just be emptied, and Festus' mind is boggled. Remember the context from last week, chapter 25, verse 23. This is a major, major event. Got a whole parade of people. Everybody's dressed up. Got the king, the queen, Festus, the military tribune, stiff uniforms, all... All, all looking good. You've got the prominent men of the city have all come to see this event. And, and they're thinking, you know, this is going to be fun. Maybe, maybe kind of intellectual. we got this guy, Paul. He's going to be interesting. Or maybe, you know, they thought they would intimidate Paul. But, but Festus just goes nuts in front of everybody. Uh, he yells at this guy that he is crazy. It's very undignified. And for that reason... Is clearly genuine. The resurrection is mind-blowing. And for those who believe, it is so hopeful. Which I think should transition us to our final point. Paul's message here is compassionate. It's compassionate. You know, Paul, he begins his speech in verse 2. He says, it's a defense. And over the past couple of weeks, we've seen Paul defend himself now five times. He defended himself against the Jews when they, after they tried to kill him. Uh, he defended himself before the Jewish council, before Felix, before Festus, finally now before King Agrippa. And uh, Jonathan and I have both pointed out that Paul's behavior here, this is a positive example that believers should defend themselves when faced with unjust accusations. And yet, it's very important for us to notice that there's always a bigger priority for Paul. There's this compassion that drives him to seek people out more than simply to defend himself. And in fact, I think we could, we could clearly say that his compassion drives him to say things that, you know, a lawyer would tell him, Paul, zip it. Man, you're, you're saying way too much. I mean, if I were Paul's Lawyer, I don't think I'd even let him speak. I would just duct tape him to his seat and do the work for him. But here, Paul starts out with a defense, but somewhere around the middle, we begin thinking, this seems a bit too preachy to be just a defense. I mean, he's detailing the comprehensive benefits of the gospel 
Uh, in verse 20, he even throws in repentance and the importance of true repentance, performing deeds in keeping with that repentance. And then by the time Festus uh, loses it, it, it is clearly no longer a defense. It is an attack. It's a compassionate attack. But, but look who's accusing who. Paul says to King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Admit it. Well, Agrippa's not, not going to admit it in front of all the prominent men of Caesarea and the tr military tribunes, but, but in his heart, maybe. That is the target for Paul. Agrippa knows what Paul is trying to do. Verse 28, in such a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? And, and here's where Paul's heart for his listeners, it just pours out of him, right? It's, it's not about defending himself. Yes, that is right and good. But the priority of his evangelistic compassion for the lost is that they might know Christ like he does. He says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Agrippa says, is this what you want? You want to make me a Christian? Paul says, no. I'll tell you what I want. I wish all of you could be like me, minus what is hard in my life, these chains. Paul says these words to the smallest all the way up to the greatest. This message is for the slave peeking out from behind the curtain, listening in, and for the king in his purple robes. It is a message of hope for all people. I wish you had what I have. I hope there are some of you here who feel a longing when you hear Paul say that. You want to join him in saying that. You think of people, you just want them to know, I wish you had what I have. I wish you had that rooted, comprehensive, hopeful, compassionate message that, that I have, that I know. I wish you were like me, not in terms of my chains, the hard things of my life, my, my sins, my problems, but insofar as I know Christ, I wish you were like me. And as that whole pompous event ends, Paul's plea hangs in the air. And it remains for the world to hear. Now you've heard it. Do you know what Paul knows? This message that is rooted in God's word from the beginning, that is comprehensive in its impact on your life, that is hopeful and compassionate. I hope you do. I wish you would. Let's pray. Lord, I... Thank you for the message of the gospel, this good news that Paul proclaims faithfully. Even in the midst of being accused falsely, Lord, and defending himself, he retains the priority to compassionately tell people about this message that he has. It's not new. It's not innovative. It is rooted in what you have said, what you have promised to your people from the beginning. 
We thank you for it, for this comprehensive message that we can search out and understand all our lives and still be amazed by, still be grateful for, still wish that people knew and had like we have it. Lord, we praise you for the hope we have, the resurrection hope we have. Lord, that motivates us to praise you, to worship you, and to tell others about you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our final hymn is number 227, On Christmas Night All Christians Sing. Now you'll say, it's not Christmas, it's not night, Ash, but I um, recognize that it's not Christmas yet, and I know some of you don't sing carols until after Thanksgiving, so I'm sorry. But we can't just sing Christmas carols one night of the year, and so I think we need to start with this one. I believe the choir is singing this, so this will get you prepared. Other thing that just to keep an eye on is some of the lyrics in this hymn, if you're paying attention, are drawn from what Jesus says 